0: Welcome aboard. We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime. Ready when you are, CV. Action. Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 18. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are here to talk about Mary Poppins. It's Mary Poppins Month. That's, my, that's, that's how I'm entering this December Yes, Christmas is great And you have all the holidays And Hanukkah, and New Year's, Kwanzaa Whatever it is that you celebrate But for all intents and purposes This is a Mary Poppins month
1: It's true, we did our Christmas movie Thank you, next
0: Yes, exactly Ready to move on As much as we enjoyed the Santa Claus We are ready to move on And talk about um, Mary Poppins Because you have the new movie Coming out in like eight days And yeah. it's, it's hot right now it's, it's tangible People want to discuss it
1: exactly it was supposed to be a christmas release and they bumped it up
0: right but more about that later um yeah the timeless classic mary poppins and it's it's hard to believe how difficult this movie was to make for walt disney not just from a technical standpoint but to actually make the movie 20 years it took him to get this movie made it's incredible I
1: know what a labor of love it must have been. He had to jump through flaming hoops just to secure the rights and then he had to pull out every trick in the book to actually achieve the production.
0: I know. And they it it's such a story that they made a movie about the making of the movie. Spo-
1: and we're going to talk about that too.
0: <laughs> Spoiler, we're talking about that one next week. Big lead into Mary Poppins returns. I'm yeah. excited. We're we're celebrating. I'm looking forward to the to the new one. But um, as I mentioned before, t- a 20-year process. And this was this was based off a series of books?
1: Yeah. Mary Poppins actually started out as a series of eight books by Pamela L. Travers. They were published from 1934 through 1988, so well beyond the release of this film. Sure. And um, it they did feature Mary Poppins and the Banks children, but their adventures were more a series of vignettes as opposed to A story about a family in trouble which is what we know now
0: sure and they kind of just pulled from books and pulled certain elements from certain chapters to kind of make this a more cohesive story
1: well i think what disney wanted the rights for was because his daughters love the books and i'm sure he had a clear vision of what he wanted to do and how he wanted to build on what were already fun stories. And we'll definitely talk about a little bit more of the history behind that next week when we do Saving Mr. Banks. But I'm sure he had the vision first of what he wanted to look like, and then he wove this story through it about the family to kind of link everything together.
0: So why don't we just delve right in? let's let's set up the the plot here for the original Mary Poppins,
1: okay. Mary Poppins the film was released in 1964 and in this adaptation we meet the Banks family in a time of trouble Katie Nana announces that she is quitting after the children Jane and Michael have run away from her for the fourth time that week The children are shortly returned by the constable who found them chasing their kite But George Banks who has just returned from work is upset coming home to disorder and doesn't care about the reason they ran off again In need of a replacement nanny, George takes matters into his own hands and calls in an advertisement to the newspaper while the children make a list of their own requirements for a new nanny. The next morning, there is an overwhelming response to the ad lined up at 17 Cherry Tree Lane, but all of the potential nannies are blown away by a change in the wind and in sails Mary Poppins, who is practically perfect for the job according to the children's standards. She talks herself into the position and immediately gets to work with the children. After unpacking her many large belongings, she uses her magic and teaches the children how to tidy up their nursery, and Jane and Michael quickly learn that Mary Poppins is not your average nanny. They then head out for a day in the park. Outside of the park, they meet Bert, who has just sketched a series of chalk drawings on the sidewalk. Mary Poppins uses her magic again, and the group jumps into one of Bert's drawings of the English countryside. While the children run off to the fair, Mary and Bert take a stroll and stop for some tea. When they later meet up again with Jane and Michael, they ride a carousel, and Mary Poppins uses her magic to have the horses jump off the track and take them for a ride. They find themselves in the middle of a fox hunt, and while Bert goes to help rescue the fox, Mary Poppins makes her way over to the racetrack, overtakes the riders, and wins the horse race. When the press swarms her for a quote, she sums up winning as supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. A rainstorm ends the jolly holiday, and Mary Poppins takes the children home, gives them some medicine, and sings them off to sleep with a lullaby. The next day, while heading out to do some errands with the children, Mary Poppins learns that Uncle Albert is in trouble and quickly heads over to help him. She and the children are greeted by Bert and Uncle Albert, who has laughed himself up to the ceiling. Laughter is highly contagious, and before long, he is joined by Bert, Jane, and Michael, and finally Mary Poppins for a tea party on the ceiling. The children return home and tell their parents of their adventures, so George asks to have a word with Mary Poppins. Using a different kind of magic, Mary Poppins convinces Mr. Banks to take the children on an outing to work with him the next day. As they walk over to the bank where George works, Michael points out the bird lady sitting on the cathedral steps just as Mary Poppins said she'd be and wants to buy food for Tuppence to feed the birds. George prefers Michael to invest his Tuppence instead and hurries them to the bank. To be specific, the Dawes, Tomes, Mousley, Grubbs, Fidelity Fiduciary Bank, where the children are introduced to the partners who press Michael to open an account. Michael still refuses to part with his Tuppence and causes a scene in the bank And scared over the commotion, Jane and Michael run away again. They get lost in the streets of London where they run into Bert, who is sweeping chimneys. Bert takes the children home and is left in charge as Mary Poppins has the day off. He cleans the bank's chimney and as Jane and Michael are watching, they get swept up the chimney and onto the roof. Mary Poppins and Bert follow suit and they are joined by all of Bert's chimney sweep friends who are ready to blow off some steam after their work day. George Banks arrives home, already mad at the children from the incidents at the bank, and is put in a worse mood to find his home in disarray. After kicking out the chimney sweeps, the telephone rings, and George is summoned back to the bank where the partners fire him. He blames Mary Poppins for all of the chaos in his life and finally realizes in that moment what she has actually done for his family. George is relieved to have been fired so he can reprioritize what is really important to him, and after spending the night figuring everything out, he returns home with Jane and Michael's kite mended. The family goes to enjoy the day flying the kite in the park, and Mary Poppins realizes that she has done her job and flies off the way she came in.
0: What's eye-catching from the very start, and this entire film is eye-catching, but I couldn't think of a better way to start it off than with those beautiful paintings of London.
1: Yeah, And it really pulls you in because the other thing I noticed in the beginning is the music. They have this medley of all the big songs and it kind of morphs from like Feed the Birds into Spoonful of Sugar. And it's taking you over the cityscape. So you're pulled in right away and then you see this woman sitting on top of the clouds.
0: Yeah, and that graphic comes to life.
1: I can only imagine what it must have been like in a 1960s audience to see that for the
0: first time. What I can't get over watching that in 2018, you want to talk about a 1960s audience, but in 2018, the effects in this movie, and especially that effect, they still look impressive. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, this, it goes without saying, but this movie was so state-of-the-art for its time. I feel, you know what? I think that so many people talk about how significant a movie like Avatar is, Star Wars, Titanic. But I feel like for some reason, people gloss over how significant this movie was from a technical standpoint.
1: Yeah, and to me, something like this is far more impressive because for things like Avatar, you had computers working for you. Yeah. This was all practical.
0: Right. Up to and including those beautiful paintings.
1: Right. But um, it, it's just such a funny way, I think, to kick it off because, you know, you're drawn in and it must have been so jarring to see her sitting there like that. You, you immediately know that you're going on a ride.
0: Yeah, that's and exactly what it is.
1: It's such a great little sneak peek at what you're going to get for the rest of the movie because the effects just get better and better and better as it goes on.
0: Right, and it's not just that, but the set's in all, are very impressive, as are the costumes. I mean, you see that from the jump.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I actually thought that they shot on location. I didn't realize it was a set. And like now, the more I watch it, the more you really see where that Disney classic forced perspective comes in. And uh, a lot of it... You know, obviously, like, for Step in Time and all the rooftops and everything, like, you know that that's done on a set. But the Cherry Tree Lane set, I really thought that that was location or, you know, if it wasn't London, it was something that looked similar. And then, you know, you come to learn that it it was all built.
0: Stage four in Burbank. I mean, they made it specifically for that movie. Yeah. Yeah, really impressive stuff. Um, And you get Dick Van Dyke from The Jump. I mean, he's there right at the start of the movie. As that one man band. And I remember for me, even as a kid, I thought, that's a lousy English accent.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It is. And he knows it is. But it just kind of works as the total package.
0: Yeah. I mean, he's so brilliant in the rest of the movie that he's completely forgiven for that. If that's his only downfall. Because he is so good in this movie. Um, But... That's the one thing I've never been able to shake in all of these years of watching it.
1: Yeah, especially because they have him lead off as the narrator, um, which I think is kind of an interesting choice. Um, You know, I love that when we first meet Bert, you see that he's going to be this kind of of jack-of-all-trades because he's literally a one-man band. And then he finishes up his song and performing for the crowd. And then he breaks the fourth wall and looks into the camera. Yeah. And he's like, hello, hello, hello. And there's your, <laughs> the accent is even worse than mine, I dare say. And, um, you know, he, he brings you down the street and he introduces you to the Admiral and then to the Banks house.
0: Um, and as he's walking the the instruments are still playing the drums are banging because they're all connected to his legs that
1: is hilarious i I love that they like left that in and they didn't bother to make him you know take take himself out of this apparatus and he's just kind of clanging along there yeah but the only thing that's kind of weird for me is that that's as far as it goes as far as him narrating yeah they never go back to it they never you don't really need it throughout the rest of the story. And I, I kind of don't like that they just left it like that. Like I almost wish at the end, because it does sort of end with Bert saying goodbye to Mary Poppins, I kind of wish that came full circle. And he did have one more line where he does look at the camera and it's something like, well, she's off to go save her next family or, or just something. And especially because I feel like that would lend to the sequel now.
0: Yeah, but I, I just feel like it wouldn't have added anything to the movie. The movie was the perfect ending. She, you know, they she leaves the banks is happy flying the kite, and she she rides off into into the sunset, and he says goodbye to her. I, I just I feel like it would have cheapened it if you had him go there. She goes. It's like we know there she goes. We're watching her go.
1: I guess that's true. I mean. I definitely don't think a narrator was needed throughout. I don't think he needed to... You know, you didn't need anybody that was going to say, well, then we jumped into the chalk picture. Right. And we went out for the day and we rode horses and you definitely didn't need that to string it all together.
0: Right. It's not as if this is one of the bank's children that's telling this story in retrospect. Right. You know, or something like that would facilitate a narrator.
1: Right. What I love about this opening too, as he's clanging along Cherry Tree Lane is the first person that we meet is the admiral and the home or the roof of the admiral's home is a ship it's got sails and masts and everything and the man is shooting cannons off of his roof and like the first time we see mary poppins it's so jarring but yet it all works
0: right and oddly enough it's not a gag that gets boring no like sometimes when things get sticky like that, they're funny the first couple of times, but then after that, it's like here we go again. But it's so outrageous that it actually happens, and that they're all so prepared for it, and they kind of just live with the fact that, well, yeah, this is what happens here. Post everyone. Yeah, exactly. That I love that. It's it gets it gets funnier and funnier every time you see it.
1: Yeah, and it, it shouldn't work at all, but it does. And as the viewer, we're just being introduced to this world and it doesn't make any sense whatsoever but it just all flows
0: yeah i mean the script in totality is it's kind of simple you know it's it's the drama in the film stems from the fact that this family is broken right that's that's where the drama is because that's that can be very unsettling for any child of any age
1: right and They really do a great job setting up this movie and driving the point home of how broken the family is. I mean, it's not a story where like the parents are fighting and you're worried that they're going to get a divorce and that's what's going to affect the children. It's that they are just so absorbed in their own lives. I almost said self-absorbed, but and they kind of are in a way, but not not in a vain way they're just so involved with their own interests that they don't even realize what's going on with their children as far as they're concerned it's like they have a nanny and the nanny looks after the children and that's
0: that's about the the end of it right he goes to work he makes a bunch of money they have this beautiful house she's off you know campaigning for her cause which is a great cause but I, my concern was that she was not concerned when she found out her children had gone missing in the park.
1: Her immediate concern is what their father's going to say. She's more worried about his reaction than what's actually happened to the kids.
0: Yeah, I I had the, um, the feeling that she is completely uh, overwhelmed by her husband.
1: Yeah, which is ironic to me because Winifred Banks spends most of her days supporting the votes for women cause she's a suffragette right and it's balanced because she hides all of that from her husband you know she's got these sashes that she wears that say votes for women and she beats him in the door seemingly by about five minutes every time and she takes them off and she hides them or she'll have the maids help her hide them and she never ever talks about it in front of george right um but to me it almost weakens her character because think of what you're fighting for,
0: but you won't stand up to your own husband. Uh, That bothered me less, though, because I think that it was sort of appropriate for the time. That was a very taboo thing, and he even goes so far, he does have a throwaway line that he doesn't support that cause at all.
1: Yes, there is a throwaway line in the very beginning.
0: And I, I think that there were a lot of people that felt that way. A lot of men that felt that way when women tried to get the vote, not just in England, but also in the United States. So I can see where, for the sake of trying to keep a civil home, they would hide that. Maybe they did feel intimidated by it. I think that was that was sort of the whole motivation behind getting this vote was we didn't they didn't want to be, you know, swept under the rug anymore. They wanted to have equality.
1: Right. It was a really smart choice, though, to do that for the story, because here's the other thing you have to keep in mind, is that he's making all this money and he is of the mindset that a woman's place is in the home. But you've already got a cook, a maid, and a nanny. If they didn't give her somewhere to go, the story falls apart, because then she's just going to look like a, a horrible mother that can take care of her children and chooses not to if she's home all day. So you did need to give her a reason to physically leave the home. Correct. But I think it also works too um, to almost villainize George Banks because not only is he not supportive of the cause, but when we first meet him, he takes no responsibility for Katie Nana leaving. And instead of blaming the children that he neglects and their behavior, you know, sort of taking ownership of their behavior, he blames Winifred for a bad hire. I don't know if you catch it because it's a very It's a very subtle line, but that's why he decides to call the paper and put the ad in for a new nanny. He's like, I got this from now on.
0: And didn't she seem relieved when he said he would take the lead on it?
1: She says, I would have muddled the whole thing.
0: Yeah. He is a very imposing figure in that house. Right. You know, he's not a physically imposing man, but he just commands so much respect. And it it seems like everybody in the house... They just kind of bend to his every need, but he lives in his own bubble because he is so regimented that he doesn't seem like the type of person that can deviate from their routine. And when they do, it's an earth shattering thing.
1: Right. That opening number—it's it, not one of the bigger songs, and I—I I almost use the song term "song" loosely because it's kind of like a like a—he talks through it. He doesn't really like full out sing, but it's like at six oh one. I do this at 6.02. I do that. And he expects his children to be there, and that's the reveal that Jane and Michael aren't there yet, it's, which Winifred has been trying to tell him.
0: It's a great song, though, because it's catchy enough, but it does a great job of developing him because other than him just walking through the door and us hearing, oh, father, oh, father, oh, master, oh, this, you you get his entire character in less than two minutes. Exactly. And it's perfect. Like, it sums him up perfectly.
1: And it really makes you dislike him. Um, you know, especially because then he goes on, the The children feel bad, he, he sends them upstairs, and they come back down with their advertisement for a new nanny, and all of their requirements and things that they would like to see, and they're trying to make it better and help him, and he just completely shuts them down.
0: Yeah, he, uh, you can tell that, uh, whimsy and fun don't go very far with him
1: I remember as a kid I truly disliked him as a character and you know it's not until you get older and realize that this movie is more about him than it is Mary Poppins that he won me over but when you're just looking at this from a kid's perspective. It's like he brings all the fun to a screeching halt every single time. Right.
0: Yeah, and it's funny that you bring that up because you don't see the title character for the first what, 15 minutes of the movie.
1: They're about except I'm not counting the opening credits when she's when she's sitting in the clouds, but right. when she actually comes to the home, yeah.
0: And you you get her a little bit in the beginning, you get her a little bit in the end, really the meat of her uh existence in the film is the middle of the film, but you're right she's i don't want to call her a secondary character, but as a as a child, you don't realize that it's a movie about George banks
1: yeah, definitely not a secondary character, but that's it she's she's the title character, but it's not her
0: story no it's his she's supporting technically right i mean it's it's the whole family but it's more specific to him. Right. And they they do that in such a unique way, but it's so smart. I mean, everything about this movie is absolutely brilliant. And it it there's a reason why this movie got nominated for best picture. Right? 13 Oscar nominations I think it got in all,
1: including best picture, best actress, um all of the technical stuff, the the sound, uh, music, the music,
0: yeah. Special effects, um, all of it deserving. And um, we find out that this movie takes place in nineteen ten. So everything lends itself to the time, up to and including he's regimented, he comes in. Like that was his role in that family. Like as a kid I didn't like him, but as I've gotten older, I've kind of been like, you know what? Listen, I go to a job every day, I come home I want to come home and I want to unwind. I want to walk in the door at the same time, which is a luxury that for my profession, I don't have that luxury. Not at all. There are nights I work in food and beverage. There are nights I walk in the door at 930 and there are nights I walk in the door at 330 in the morning and I'm still at work at 11 o'clock. And It's not like my I'm in at the same time every day. Right. So there's a part of me that's like, hey, you know what? I can get on board with at 601 I walk in the door at 6i2 at 602 I have my sherry and my pipe. Like there's 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 a part of that that I be honest as I get older that's kind of it's very appealing to me.
1: It's funny that you say that though because that's where this film appeal appealed to all ages out of the gate. Right. Where it wasn't just the fun gimmicks and the sight gags and the songs but like you're saying now as you get older you appreciate him more. I'm sure that there were a lot of fathers that took their children to see this movie that saw themselves in Mr. Banks.
0: There's a big there's there's a big look in the mirror I think for a lot of people. And Walt Disney was quoted as saying that he didn't make children's movies. He made movies that his children or he his movies were movies that children were not embarrassed to take their parents to see. Right. And that ties this all together. like that's that ties this up in a bow perfectly. If you're going to surmise this film, you know, in that quote, it, it it's almost as if he said it specifically about this movie,
1: yeah. I think this movie is the most shining example he has of yeah. of that belief
0: absolutely. Um and and even with the women's vote and and the way that you know, he viewed certain issues within the home and, and with his wife. It, it all ties together with 1910. Yeah. Really, really well done. And the horse and buggies outside and, um, and even like the, the architecture of those buildings and the mm. cobblestone streets, like they nailed every detail from a visual down to a script and to a character. I mean, really, I can't say enough about how great this movie is. Absolutely. And the the crazy thing, though, is that what makes the movie its best, more so than the script, and more so than the story itself, is the music. I mean, really, when you think about this movie, what what's the first thing that comes to mind is the music. And I, I can't think of any other film... Th- like, even take a movie... We're not comparing greatness by any stretch of the imagination. Let's take a movie like Grease. That is a just that that's a movie that is a straight musical. Is it's it's one of the most recognizable films that is a straight musical. Everybody has seen it. We've mentioned it on this show before. Grease in the story, though, has drama. It's got childish quote unquote childish drama. High school drama. High school drama where Heavy
1: high school drama. They they are dealing with some bigger issues. I'm getting to that.
0: Um you have the, the lighthearted high school drama of Sandy's going back to Australia and John Travolta's character is going to carry on in high school. That was his summer crush. But then they also tackle, as you were alluding to, teen pregnancy. Right. Like there's drama in the story of, of you know, that film that the music, it's not that it's secondary, but it plays hand in hand to drive that narrative. Right. I don't get that when I think about this movie. No. I really just think about those great Sherman Brothers songs.
1: No, and especially as a kid, too, the music is so catchy and the sequences are so, you know, they, they leap off the screen with the color and the animation. Like, that's that's what you think of. Probably Jolly Holiday and Step in Time, I would say, are, like, the strongest visuals in this movie and that's what you remember as a kid. But... You know it's like we were just talking about the older you get there's more to appreciate about this movie because I think you completely lose that story when when you're watching this as a kid like you know Mary Poppins makes everything better but you just think it's because she came into town she taught the children how to behave and then in essence their father got fired so now he's got more time to spend
0: with them. What's completely overlooked as a kid, when you talk about Mary Poppins, is there's two things. Number one, that the nannies... Let's not gloss over the fact, the symbolism and the fact that the, the other candidates literally get blown away. Yes. Let's not overlook that. And you definitely don't see that as a kid. Right. Um, And it wasn't until this viewing, actually. Because admittedly, I haven't watched this movie in a long time. Right. I remember Mary Poppins as being the magic nanny. Mm -hmm. you know as a kid but as an adult you recognize how stern she is
1: yeah she's definitely no nonsense like as a kid you recognize that spit spot but how, how she commands the room and that's what I love about when we first meet her is that you know she flies in and she puts George Banks in his place and we just got done talking about how stern he is.
0: Yeah, and I I think that you had to do it that way because you needed somebody to check him. Exactly. Because otherwise, I feel like he's just, he'll bulldoze the entire movie.
1: But what's funny, too, is that she doesn't bulldoze him necessarily. She, like, backtalks him and dances around things until she gets her way.
0: She's very clever. Yes. She's very calculated with everything that she does especially in her conversations with george banks yes she doesn't have a lot of them in this movie but where she does that's exactly what it is you're right she back talks him but in a way where it seems as if she's kind of sucking up to him it's reverse psychology right she talks
1: herself into the job and then later on when he's not happy with her performance she's like in a way, well, if you can do so much better than do it, you take them to work. It's Spend exactly the day with them right. and see how it goes.
0: It's exactly right.
1: But I think back to the point that you were starting to make is what you don't realize when you're a kid is that she does this over the course of three days. You have day one where they tidy up the nursery and then they go into the the chalk painting. That's all one. And that's her first day on the job. Yeah. Then they're running errands at and they have to go help Uncle Albert. That's two. And I mean, you could argue that maybe there's a passage of time that we don't see because then the next thing we know, she's getting lectured by by George Banks, and then he's taking them to work the next day. So really three days she's there.
0: Yeah, at least three meaningful days. Yes. That's pointed out to us. It's not like watching like a perfect a uh, perfect example, like Mrs. Doubtfire, right? Right, right where right, right. you have, even though it's it's really the father, you have the nanny. But they show you that there has been weeks and weeks of build up to that relationship. This happens really, really fast, right? Um, and uh, I, I just feel like they did such a good job because, as you pointed out before, these were eight books over the course of what, fifty years.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that they were being published. um, I would have to look it up. I'm not sure when P.L. Travers passed, but they were published into 1988. So if they started in the 30s, I, I don't know what age she started writing them either. I mean, that's that's over 50 years.
0: I think she passed away in the mid 90s. I wanna say ninety five or ninety six. So
1: maybe then she was writing up until she did pass away. Because there there the first five books were about her adventures with the Banks children and then the last three were like a recounting after she had like technically left and they had grown. Um the next three books talk about adventures, but it's it's like it almost says she's looking back on it.
0: Right. Um but my point is that you took three days, three big, big days, three meaningful days, and you were able to weave a story around it, condense those books, condense those chapters. And I this movie does not exist without the music. I, we no. keep going back to it, but I, I think the meat Let's and potatoes, <laughs> we, we have to just get into it now. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, um, I, I'm going to wait until the end of our synopsis to give you my full feeling in totality about this but you you can't have this without the music
1: yeah and the music is all because of the sherman brothers who we've mentioned a couple of times before but uh you know for those that aren't familiar with disney history i think it's worth talking about that uh you know walt was such a great talent scout and he never really cared about what you did or your list of credits, he was willing to take a chance on unknown talent. And we're going to talk about this because there were a lot of unknowns in this movie. And at the time, the Sherman brothers really hadn't done that much. Um, They just connected to the material. Actually, one of my favorite stories about this movie is that, um, you know, because these are chapter books, Walt didn't have the rights to the script just yet. So he gave the Sherman brothers the book
0: They didn't know that, though.
1: Yeah, they didn't know that at the time. Um, He gave the Sherman brothers the book, and that was essentially all they had to go on. There wasn't a full script, but they started writing. But um, they read the book, they started doing their homework, and there were, I believe, six chapters from the book that they sort of gravitated towards. And they underlined them, and they handed them back to Walt. And they said, this is kind of what we were thinking. So he takes out a copy of his book, and those same... Six chapters are underlined for what he wanted to do with the film. When I learned this, the hair on my it's, it's kind of I have like goosebumps now, actually, just thinking about that. Um, and that was really all he needed as a selling point was that they felt attached to the material.
0: Yeah. And, and to them, it meant a lot to do it because similar, you know, to how people want, you know, you wanted to get involved with these Disney films. They worked without a contract. Like, them personally. Forget the film rights. They worked without a contract because they wanted to get involved with this so badly.
1: No, and it's amazing, too, because they came on so early that they were able to start drawing these songs out without a full script to go on. Uh, They actually, because of them starting to write before they had the scripts, they were a huge influence on this movie and how the story went.
0: Yeah, I mean, you can almost argue that the script was developed around the songs,
1: I I kind of think so, yeah. And you know, you can just tell that they cared about this movie so much because of the other contributions that they made. Like even Richard Sherman went on to voice one of the penguins, and then he plays the kazoo for like that penguin sound effect when they all come running out of the in cafe. Jolly Holiday, yeah. Um, and and just so many other contributions with where their lyrics turned into a big like character moment.
0: Yeah, um, I think we have to start with the first song in the film.
1: Yeah, let's go in order here, which
0: is, um, you kind of get uh, Bert singing as that one man band. Yeah, I think that's you have to start there because that, I mean, it does set up the movie so beautifully.
1: It does it. it... It kind of gives the tone for the humor and how that's going to play out through the rest of the movie because he's just kind of making rhymes up about the people that he sees. Um, So it's a great little character moment for him. It's a great introduction to his character. And, um, you know, then the wind changes and he looks to the sky and he says something's brewing.
0: I got the feeling, and I haven't read the books, that Bert is kind of like an amalgorithm of many, many characters and many of his own adventures over the course of those books. Because I do want to point out that it, it seems like, not every time, but many of the days where he gets introduced, it's, oh, today I'm this. It's almost like he's playing make-believe with himself.
1: Yeah, he's got a different profession almost every time that he's on screen and he's almost making fun of himself because he's like, today I'm a chimney sweep. Today I'm a sidewalk artist. And
0: But they make it work. He's like in on work. the joke. But they make it work. Yeah. And he's almost like the third child. That's a really interesting point. Yeah. It's and, true. And I, I think that he's necessary because the children are children and Mary Poppins is what she is and she's good with the kids. But I felt like you needed that buffer in between he's kind of a bridge because you do get the
1: impression that, I mean, he obviously knows her before and he knows that she's off helping other families, you know, and there's a lot of dispute over whether or not they're romantically linked. I think there's a romantic interest, but in this film in particular, it never really, it never really gets off the ground. And I, I presumably that's because Mary Poppins kind of comes and goes. Um, But, He's definitely serves as a bridge to the children, you know, because he's kind of explaining to them, Mary Poppins is back in town. We're going to have some fun. Right. And he's also when, you know, when she's doing her magic, it's kind of like, just go with it. Yeah. If they're not sure. And especially too, because she's so stern. You don't expect the magic. You don't expect her to want to have fun. And, you know, by the time she's already done something like, for example, with Uncle Albert's scene, she knows everybody's going to end up on the ceiling, but she's kind of faking that she doesn't really want to be a part of this.
0: Right. And um, I love Chim Chim Cheru in that in the beginning, because it harkens. I don't want to say it harkens back to that song, but you you hear that song in so many different variations throughout the movie. I mean, you hear it in a few variations just in that beginning, but what I like about it is that it shows you that he's actually very smart. Bert's actually very, very Mm. intelligent. The fact that he's able to just create these lyrics on the fly, show that he has that creativity, he has that knack, but I love that he's a familiar face in that community. Like, everybody knows who he is. Yeah. I think that that's a great way of... Presenting him, and I think it it lends well to him being kind of that narrator because you talked about how he he's the narrator that starts the movie and he's walking you down, he introduces you to Admiral Boom. The fact that he knows all these people on a first-name basis and knows their families and their children, I think it makes him perfect for it because otherwise, it's it, who is this know-it-all that nobody knows?
1: Right, it also kind of grounds the community because they are like right outside of London. So I, I can't imagine that this is a small town by any stretch of the imagination, but I think it kind of creates that sense of community with all these houses that are along the side of the park.
0: Right. Um,
1: and he does have a medley of his own because you're right. It It is, uh, I think it starts on step in time and then it kind of morphs into uh, chimchery. Yeah, I think. And it's when it slows down and the wind changes.
0: Right. Oh, and when the wind changes and he just gets that look in his eye, he knows Mary Poppins is coming. Yes. Um, The next song you get is Sister Suffragette, which I, fo- I think that song is so clever. Yes. And I think it's very smart. And I think that not only does it give you the setup for Mrs. Banks, but for those who are not aware of what was going on at the time... I thought it was a creative way of kind of breaking it down to the level of a child where it was like, hey, this is what was happening in 1910. This was very important to a lot of people without it becoming either preachy or like a history lesson. Right. They Walt Disney was really smart about teaching children without coming off as if he's teaching them like in a classroom he did it on their level we talked about how they did it that way going back to snow white and the seven dwarfs right with cleaning up and washing your hands and cleaning behind your ears without it being preachy
1: right and in in this instance too she's talking about one of her sister suffragettes being arrested right so it's a fun upbeat number But yeah, you are getting that little bit of history in here. And I think even maybe as as a kid, it's kind of over your head a little bit, but they do hit on everything.
0: And I just love how it sounds like a march. Yes. You know, it's, it's it's a battle cry. It's a rally song.
1: That's another thing that the Sherman Brothers did so well with the music is that they pulled from so many different influences. And I feel like they almost created songs that you feel like you know them already. Mm-hmm. And it's all original music. They didn't copy anything. But a lot of these songs just feel so familiar. And you're right. Sister Suffragette is one of them.
0: Mm-hmm. And then George Banks comes in with his song. We talked about it before. Again, at the at the risk of repeating myself, a wonderful way of introducing this character and how regimented he is from the jump.
1: I think both of those songs sister suffragette and his song which i'm i'm not even sure what it's called it's i think his, it's his the punctuality, life i lead so, oh the life i
0: lead yes I yes i think yes. is the proper title i
1: couldn't think of the uh, the the hook on that song but both of these songs and that that is the point that i'm making is that they're kind of forgettable in comparison to every everything else but they're so important to the characters they're perfect to develop the characters
0: to me those songs are no less important than supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Right. But that's the one you remember. Right. You're right. These are forgettable songs in the grand scheme of things. But they are so crucial yes. to the story, to the characters.
1: It's it's almost like we were talking about uh, with Santa Claus last week is that they spend about, although Mary Poppins does it a little longer, I would say there's about, Five minutes of setup. But it's just so quick and to the point through these
0: songs. It's great. Right. And even Mary Poppins' first song has become one of the most iconic songs in the history of cinema. Right. She's not in that house for five minutes before she's in the nursery with the kids singing Spoonful of Sugar.
1: Right. Because when she goes for her quote unquote job interview where she just kind of talks George Banks into letting her into his home... You you said it before is that she comes off kind of stern, so you can't really get a read on her. And I remember when I was a kid, like, I really didn't know what to make of that, like, if, if she was likable or not. Right. And then this song makes her instantly likable.
0: I love the story behind this song as well how the Sherman brothers were trying to come up with, you know, a catchphrase, like a way of life. And like a motto. Right, exactly. What's a motto with you? <laughs> I walked into that. Yep. We to, oh, we're gonna talk about that one later this year. <laughs> Can't wait to talk about The Lion King. Um But um it was Bob Sherman's son. They they were having an issue coming up with the perfect song. His, they had the music. They, had they the didn't music. have this lyric yet. Right. And they were trying to come up with that motto and they had nothing and bob sherman went home and was talking to his son who had gotten the polio vaccination in school and he thought that they had given them an injection but it turns out they had put the um they'd put the medicine on a cube of sugar and gave it to the kids to ingest and that's how he came in the next day with the notion of spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down
1: and i love what they did with the lyrics too is because Mary Poppins uses her reverse psychology and she's always doing the opposite of what's expected. So in the music itself, when she sings the word down, it goes up.
0: She goes up on down. Um, And you talk about that reverse psychology. She can take something as boring as cleaning your room. No kid likes to clean their room. But she finds a way to say, there are objectives here. And if you can find the objectives, the job's a game. Right. And, and uh, again, it's so important to have this song and to have this scene because you see just how intelligent she is. Similar to how we talked about how Walt Disney will teach you a lesson without getting on a soapbox. She does the same thing.
1: Right. And at the end of the song She tricks the kids into into, into cleaning, cleaning up. Their room. Yeah. At the end of it, she's like, All right, now we're gonna go out since your room is clean and Michael's like, No, I wanna tidy up the nursery again. Yeah. I mean, hook, line, and sinker, she got them.
0: She totally got some.
1: Before we talk about the next song though, I do wanna talk a little bit about um some of the practical the practical effects for this sequence, Spoonful of Sugar, because it's amazing. Yeah. Um I mean most of it is pretty easy. You can tell that a lot of it was shot in reverse. Uh you know, the table flipping over or the books piling back up. Um you know, they just played the film backwards and and it it's simple enough, but it's it's just so clever. Like how would you even think to do that, you know?
0: He was Walt Disney. Exactly. He he, he knew what to do and he had the right people on his team.
1: Right. Um some of the other things that they use were stop motion animation for like when the toy soldiers go back in the box um and when the cupboards are opening and shutting um that was all stop motion and um one of the other things that they did was um when mary poppins leans out the window and she gets the uh is it a sparrow a sparrow or a robin it's a robin it was a robin yeah i think so um well, regardless, they used audio anim- animatronics, and that's something that we see still today in the park. It's almost, you know, what's really interesting to me is that when they explain how it works, I almost feel like it's an early computer, is that they had the audio programmed, and when, you know, it hits a certain note, then the animatronic does an action. That's, that's like computer, essentially. Well, She's just w- not binary. Well,
0: she was controlling a lot of that, too. She had yeah. cables running down her sleeve and that's why they shoot her really from like the chest up because she's holding the bird about shoulder high. But what you don't see is that she's got the controller in her other hand.
1: Yeah, which was funny to learn because I always even as a kid thought she looked so stiff leaning out that window and I thought maybe it was just because of the way they had her leaning like it never occurred to me that they had her like wire rigged for this bird.
0: Right. Right. And the, she, quote unquote, voiced the bird as well. The yeah. bird's whistling is actually Julie Andrews. That's a recording of her whistling.
1: Yeah, that was a
0: fun fact to learn. To harmonize with herself. Um, and I don't know if you caught it, but you talked about the stop motion with the building blocks. Yeah. Did you notice that they spelled out Diz? Yeah. I love that.
1: Yeah, it's such a nice little... I don't even think he had a hand in that. I think they just kind of did it. because he wasn't on set for a lot of this he only popped in you know this was later in his life Um, I don't believe that he was sick yet but um, he had the parks going at this point he had a lot going on I think he only really popped in because he wanted to see Feed the Birds and um, I think he popped in for Step in Time
0: too right Um, but without question it's it's, as odd as it sounds, this is to me, in spite of everything else, that's so important. This is the scene that gets the movie started. Oh, yeah.
1: But again, that's that's one of those things where it's like looking at it from a kid's perspective. Because when I was a kid, I wasn't thinking about character development. I thought, okay, the grown-ups are singing these boring songs. Let's see Mary Poppins' Magic. Right. After you had seen this movie once or twice, like you wanted to get to Spoonful of Sugar.
0: Yeah, um, and you think, how much better can it get? I remember watching this movie for the first time and being completely blown out of the water by it and thinking there's going to be nothing that gets better than what I just saw until you get to the next song. And then you get to the one after that. Like, they just get better and better.
1: It's mind blowing. Yeah. The next two in sequence are Jolly Holiday and Supercala. And, um, I, I think in my mind, because it all takes place in the chalk drawing, they're kind of lumped together in a way. But um, it's just, I, I think, definitely something that I took for granted as a kid because, you know, we're coming from the Roger Rabbit generation. We've seen animation where the animated character is interacting with Live action. Right. But what you don't necessarily realize is that, you know, Roger Rabbit is obviously shot live action and then they put the animation over it. This is the complete reverse and it's like 25 years earlier. They had to get the actors into an animated world and it was done before green screen. Way before green
0: screen. Everything about this scene is... Not only iconic for this film, but it's iconic in cinema. Films like Who Framed Roger Rabbit don't exist without Mary Poppins. Absolutely not. And what's amazing to me all these years later is how clean it all looks. I'm not just talking about the fact that they hid the cables well. The animation is so crisp. And they blend the live action characters in so well that they don't look out of place. It doesn't look like bad CGI. It doesn't look like outdated special effects. How often do you see a movie you go, wow, this must have looked great in nineteen sixty something, but now it doesn't really stand the test of time. This movie does. Absolutely, yeah. So
1: the way that they constructed this sequence is as I said, you know, there were no no green screens and actually You had asked me, they were like, you you said as we were watching this, you were like, why didn't they use a green screen? And my initial reaction was because, well, they didn't have computers. That's what a green screen is for, really, is to key out what you don't want in the scene. But they didn't, I guess they didn't use it back then because they didn't really have it back then. Green is recognized by a computer, and that's why they shoot it on either green or blue so that you can pull it out. This was all over black and what they did was um they used sodium vapor so they had they they painted the set black behind them and then once they layered the animation to put it all together the the painted background went where the black was then you'd have For example, Mary and Bert walking through in Jolly Holiday and then the penguins, for example, would go on top of it. And that's kind of how they they were able to stack that scene and blend it all together so seamlessly. But it's just amazing because, you know, we talked about how they did it for Roger Rabbit. But to have to break that down and do it in reverse is just so impressive. And I can only imagine. I mean, I know they had the animators on set, but. To to have to direct something like this where you're not necessarily or you're not always going to be tracing over the live action frame to know where you're going to put your animation. But to have to worry about the background, too, is
0: is mind blowing to me. What was insane to me was learning that this was the first scene that they shot in this movie. Yeah. And this was Julie Andrews first film.
1: Yeah, we haven't even really got to hit on that yet
0: she was a stage actress. She came up through the vaudeville scene and was a Broadway actress, a stage actress in London. And this was her first movie, which by the way, let's not gloss over the fact that, uh, she won the Academy award for best actress in her first film.
1: Right. Yeah. We were talking before about Walt's pension for being able to find talent. And, uh, he had heard about her and he went to New York to see her in Camelot. That's what she was doing at the time. And um, prior to that, she had done My Fair Lady, which they were at the time turning into a film. And that's the film that she wanted. But instead, for reasons unknown to me, they ca- they cast Audrey Hepburn, who didn't even sing.
0: No, she had somebody, she she lip synced and somebody sang for her. Yeah. Well, they wanted a name.
1: That's exactly what I mean, because she is a name but I, I don't think that she had the chops to back it up. If you wanted a name, I'm sure you could have also found a name actress who could sing as well.
0: Right. And hey, listen, their their poor decision, <laughs> as poor as the decision could be, because My Fair Lady ended up winning Best Picture that year, beat Mary Poppins, which I'm sure was a little salt in the wound for Julie Andrews, mm. but she walks away with the Academy Award for her performance. Um, Their loss is our gain.
1: Absolutely, because... This character is not what it is without Julie Andrews. That's not to say, though, I think had Julie Andrews been cast in My Fair Lady, I think she still would have gotten Best Picture Actress, and it would have also won Best
0: Overall. Yeah, probably. I think you're right. Um, But to think that you've never done a film before, this is your first one, and you're, you're here acting with cardboard cutouts and with Dick Van Dyke, and there's no background you're interacting with things that aren't there yet because they're going to animate them in post. She makes it look like she's done it a hundred times. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just it's such a compliment to how smart and how talented Julie Andrews is.
1: Yeah, I mean, all of her sight lines match up. It doesn't look forced. It doesn't look like she... I mean, obviously, they're not going to use a bad take where she looks confused, but... Even just watching some of the behind-the-scenes stuff before all of it was added, she just does it so flawlessly.
0: Right, and they have her hooked up on cables, and she's she's spinning around in the air during Jolly Holiday, and she's flying off the ground. I knew that this was her first film. Never in a million years would I would have thought that this was the first scene that they shot. I, w- I would have assumed this was one of the last scenes they would have shot, Yeah, just it's, to get her comfortable.
1: It's remarkable that they started with the hardest part. Yeah. I think part of that though might have been scheduling because this was also done on hiatus from the Dick Van Dyke show. So you had to get his stuff first.
0: Right, and they had a very short window to yeah, shoot with this, him. Yeah, cuz
1: it filmed for 9 months, but I mean, what could you've had him for 3 maybe? At best. So they had to get this out of the way first.
0: Um Jolly Holiday though is a it's a great song. Um I find that song interesting because you talk about how everybody knows Bert and Bert knows everybody, but nobody knows Mary Poppins, either than uh, other than Bert. And then you find out that the Penguins say you're our favorite person. Like they just—they all think so highly of her. Really, that's the entire song is just let's let's gush over how special Mary Poppins is.
1: Yeah, yeah. In this world, Mary Poppins is very well known.
0: And. There are times in other films where I'll see a song like this, and it's like we don't really need this song. That's the title character, or that's the main character. You know that she's special. Don't you know? Don't beat us over the head with the fact that she's special because I don't always like things that are that deliberate. Sure. But there's just something about this that I I enjoy it so much.
1: And I like too that you kind of get the impression because everybody knows her that. Bert has obviously brought her here before. So I'm wondering if, like, maybe that was something they pulled from the books is that all of these drawings were from their days spent together. Yeah. And now he's just kind of bringing her back
0: there. I mean, it's the entire thing is an achievement from songwriting to performance to the final product on the screen. There's, I don't have another word to describe it as. I
1: do remarkable because there was also another first in this sequence is towards the end of the song when Bert is dancing with the penguins. um, We learned that Dick Van Dyke, even though he came from a musical background and he was in Bye Bye Birdie, he was not a dancer. He learned to dance for this film.
0: And he kind of learned it on the fly.
1: Which is amazing. I mean, he's such a great physical comedian, which you can just tell from all the faces that he makes and everything it definitely lends itself to the dance but he looks so polished i was shocked to find that out
0: yeah i didn't know that he hadn't been um trained prior to this movie but we know that the physical comedy is there we'd seen him do it on television but he started off as a mime yeah so i think you know that's how his career started i think that lent itself perfectly to him being able to adapt on the fly like this and i also think that it goes back to how badly he wanted this and how important he knew this was going to be. He took this so seriously.
1: Yeah. It it just amazes me because when he does the tap dance with the penguins, he reminds me of Gene Kelly in parts of it. And to know that he couldn't dance, that that came from nothing, it, it just blows my mind. Um, the other technical part of that was that um, they had Ollie Johnson doing the animation of the penguins. And... I kind of thought that that was all mapped out ahead of time because you see the penguins kind of ducking under Burt's feet and he'll he'll do a high kick and the penguin goes underneath. I thought that was all planned. That was Ollie's way around how tightly they shot the sequence. Um, I believe there were supposed to be more penguins initially, but four was all they could fit. Right. And that was just his way of getting all of them in there.
0: Yeah. I mean, just the fact that, somebody is that smart and that creative and they think on the fly, but that's, it's it's people like him and Ward Kimball that made these films as special as they were. Yeah. I mean, all brilliant, the nine old men.
1: I mean, Disney really knew how to put a team together and I think this is where it shows the most because everybody had to be at the top of their game to pull this off.
0: Yeah, and... Between this scene and the next song, which is Super Cal, um, I was impressed with how in sync both Julie Andrews and Dick Van Dyke were together.
1: Yeah. And the the chemistry that comes through, too. It's so surprising to find out how early on that they shot this because the way that they're just interacting with each other, they're so comfortable and they look like they're having so much fun. But I think that also comes from both Julie Andrews and Dick Van Dyke knowing like the magnitude of the film that they were making.
0: Well they also said that they became friends very quickly and they've to this day have remained very close friends. Um and I know from anybody that's met Dick Van Dyke, they've said he's great. Anybody I know who has met or spoken to Julie Andrews say she's just wonderful. So I can see where those two would be able to connect right away. But I think to touch on what you said again, they knew what they had. They knew how special it was and they were so devoted to the craft.
1: Which is amazing too because again, it was her first time doing anything like this and they couldn't, from from not having made a lot of films, because he was pretty early on himself, like, as far as film goes. He had a show, but he I don't think he had a lot of movie credits. To not be able to, like, see it full out, and you're just trying to get the size and scope from the storyboards, it really is impressive.
0: Right. And it also shows not just their dedication, but how talented both of them are. Yeah. Because at the time, she was relatively unknown, and he... At the time that they started shooting this film, I think they were only two or three seasons into The Dick Van Dyke Show. Right. Like, he had become a household name, or he was at least building up his cachet, but it's not that he was unknown, but he's not Dick Van Dyke the way he is now.
1: Yeah, it's almost like... um... What How I Met Your Mother did for Jason Segel, like you didn't really know him so much at the point of I Love You Man and Sarah Marshall, but like by the time you got to Muppets, everybody knew who he was. Exactly. And that's what Disney does for people.
0: And actually, they're <laughs> they're kind of a very good comparable because not that Jason Segel does physical comedy the way Dick Van Dyke does, but the fact that you've got somebody who's not a classically trained dancer, but was able to pull off those musical numbers in The Muppets so well because he knew how important that film was. It was important to him, on a personal level, to pull that off. Right. And when we met Jason Siegel what, two months ago? They're about yeah. I was astonished with how open he was yeah. about talking about The Muppets mm-hmm. and just hearing him talk about it. And it seemed like, of all the things he spoke about, he was there to promote his latest book, He beamed when he talked about how special the Muppets were to him. Yeah. And I get the same thing when you see Dick Van Dyke in interviews talk about Mary Poppins.
1: No, and same with Julie Andrews, too, because I had worked the Hamptons Film Festival this year. So I was going through archive videos of the past couple of years, and what really put this festival on my radar was because last year they gave Julie Andrews a Lifetime Achievement Award. Alec Baldwin presented it to her, and they did a Q&A. And I wanted to go so badly, but, like, you couldn't get tickets. That's why I wanted to really go and apply for it and be a part of all that. Um, so I came across this interview with her, and when it circled around to Mary Poppins, like, I really... I mean, she seems like just such a warm person. I wasn't expecting her to go, I don't want to talk about it. But she really didn't seem tired of talking about it. After all these years, I can only imagine how many Q&A she did. And like, you know, they're here to give her a Lifetime Achievement Award. You're talking about her body of work. And then they threw it out to the crowd and all of the crowd questions were about Mary Poppins. Um, And she just happily answered every single one. She she just doesn't seem tired of it. You know, it doesn't seem to grate on her that she's still got to answer questions. And, uh, you know, there's another interview where she says to this day children can ask the children are still asking her if she can fly. And her response is that um, I, I think uh, in her younger days she was able to or something. something she's, to that not fi- she's not, not in yeah. the she's physical in shape, shape anymore to
0: do it. Um, and she still smiles and laughs when she talks about supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Yeah. And you'd think that she'd be over it by now, and she's not.
1: Yeah, I, I kind of thought she'd be like Idina Menzel about it. Like, Idina's getting sick of singing Let It Go.
0: Well, as maybe not, though. When we had Christina here, Christina said that she you'd get that impression, but she really isn't.
1: Yeah, that's true.
0: Um, And it was Julie Andrews' idea to say "supercal" backwards. Yeah. And she can still say it backwards. She said she never forgot how to do that. And she rambles it off her tongue like it's nothing.
1: Yeah, I have to imagine that that's something you have to practice a lot to get right. So it's probably just like riding a bike to her.
0: Um, I, For me, at least, I don't know about you, as great as Jolly Holiday is, I think supercalifragilisticexpialidocious is by far... The best number in this film. Mm. Step in time is close. For me it's always step in time.
1: But I'm a sucker for a big Broadway dance
0: number. As a kid. Step in time was my favorite. It still is probably my favorite. Scene in the movie. But. Watching how. They. The two of them perform together. Dick Van Dyke and Julie Andrews. um, Seeing the chemistry between the two of them and they do such a good job of towing the line between it being a a friendship versus a romantic interest without them actually Mm. crossing the line. Right. Almost being flirty, but also being playful and just being plain fun. And... Watching them interact with the animated characters, yeah, that's the thing. It's in reality, because Jane, uh, Jane and Michael are just sitting on a fence eating candied apples with right. the fox, right? But there's ten characters interacting with them on screen, and they're all animated, and there's nothing there. Yeah, they're you're talking to cardboard right. cutouts. Yeah, to me, that's the most significant scene in this film for what it did for that movie and what it has done for cinema in the 50-plus years moving forward.
1: Yeah, I definitely think that's one that I've had a greater appreciation for, you know, the older I've gotten. But, yeah, it goes from being a catchy song to realizing now how pivotal
0: it is. And it's iconic.
1: Yeah, oh yeah. Well, yes and no, though, because let's not forget Mary Poppins was on The Great Movie Ride, but this was not the song that they had in there. And they could have done it up. They could have done Super Cal up with, you know, animatronics, and it could have been very easy to recreate that scene with the animatronics, but they don't. It's it's chimchurri, actually. Right. When but it, it doesn't movie matter, because The Great Movie Ride is gone.
0: Um, I, I feel like th- this would have been too jarring a scene in The Great Movie Ride. Because the great movie ride moves kind of slow, and you're, and you're doing this big, big, you know, uh, excitable, energetic number. Fair enough. I, I feel like it, the pacing of the ride wouldn't have kept up with the pacing of the song. True. And I, I guess that's why they went with it.
1: So the next song, after they come out of the painting, um, is the Stay Awake Lullaby. And while not as catchy, especially in comparison to what precedes it, uh, this is another one of those great character songs, because this is where you really see her start to use that reverse psychology. She's, staying, she's telling them to stay up, and they can't keep their eyes open anymore, and they nod off to sleep. I think it's brilliant.
0: Right, because up to this point, that's all she's done. And you see that it's what's working for her is she's done nothing but reverse psychology on the kids to get them to do what she wants. I think it also showcases her voice nicely. It does. And it's one of the first times in the film that you, because she's kind of looking at them, and even after they fall asleep, she's kind of smiling as she looks at them. You now see that she's really starting to take not only a liking to them, but she's really starting to care for the Banks children.
1: Absolutely, yeah.
0: And I think that it's important to have that scene because it sets up what happens later when she eventually does leave them. Right, the next song after Stay Awake is Love to Laugh, which is a scene that I've always thought was fun. But I'll be honest with you, of all of the songs in this film, this is kind of the one that I enjoy the least. Oh, really? Yeah. I'm, even as a kid, I didn't. I never really cared for this song.
1: See, this is one of the ones that is not as memorable to me now, but as a kid, I always enjoyed because... You know it's fun. Obviously, they're up on the ceiling, um, but I always enjoyed like the stupid hokey jokes, and you know I loved the little. Not that there's a lot of dancing, but you know they're kind of flipping over, and him and Bert are like clapping their hands up on the ceiling. Like this was always one that I really enjoyed as a kid.
0: Well, like I said, I enjoy the scene, but the song to me, it it I mean it, it pales in comparison to the others.
1: Yes and no. I mean, to me, this is one of those songs that's like reminiscent of something that you're really familiar with. Uh The way that they're, you know, they're singing the chorus, but the way that they insert those jokes, they're they're like stupid dad jokes. But their reaction to it is hysterical because they're, they're in hysterics over something that's not really that funny and that's how they got up there in the first place. But I think what I love about this scene and I appreciate more now is that it's like a mad tea party revival on the ceiling because the actor is Edwin, and Disney wanted to work with him again and he voices the Mad Hatter. And that's why everybody knows him. If it sounds familiar, that's why you see the actor now behind the voice.
0: And I can kind of see now maybe where Alan Tudyk got some inspiration for the voice of King Candy.
1: Absolutely.
0: Right? Absolutely. You, I'm yeah. not the only one that picked up on that.
1: No, I actually, I thought it was all the same, not realizing, you know, how old Ed Wynn was and that he'd since passed.
0: Right, because I think they said he was 76 at the time that he made Mary Poppins.
1: Which is really impressive because this is another one of those technical achievement scenes. I mean, you know, I was kind of wondering how they pulled it off. Obviously they're on wires, but there are so many parts of that song where they're shot in close up and they're like right up against the ceiling and I was like, "How on earth do they pull that off?" because you can't have wires suspending them when you see the roof like that. Um so for a 76-year-old man to have to be in a wire harness for days upon days of shooting and then For other parts of it, like the close-ups, they had them sitting on almost like this teeter-totter type of rig. So they're like buckled into a seat as opposed to being suspended and that's what gives them that like weightless bouncy look.
0: Right. Yeah, I mean, and they were able to kind of turn the set on its side at times to give you the impression that they were spinning upside down up on the ceiling. Right. Oh, they everything about the production... Itself is very smart, and I kind of uh appreciate, especially as I get older, somebody that just wants to laugh that just wants to have fun, yeah, I suppose that's the point.
1: It's interesting though that this um that this wasn't one of your favorite songs because there was also a big song that got cut from the sequence, the chimpanzee um Mary sings. A song about, uh, you know, it's that reversal is where there's a zoo where uh, animals can go to watch people in cages.
0: Right. People that misbehave and they get put in a cage.
1: Right. And it's um, there's like a sign on their back, I think, that says why they're locked up in this cage. And it was it was so fully developed. You know, the, they had all the music and lyrics done for that. I think they even recorded it. But that got cut.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um... If you watch, or if you ever hear the song Chimpanzee, it's a good song, but I can see why it was cut, and I'm sort of happy that it was cut from the film. I I don't think it added anything to it. I'm
1: wondering if they felt that that scene did start to drag a little bit, and that's why they got rid of it.
0: Right. Maybe.
1: You do need this song, though, because they tell the joke about the man with a wooden leg named Smith, and that comes up later and it in a pivotal scene.
0: Right. And then when it does come up you you see the the elder you know the, the elder banker starts to float up. Uh, yeah, I mean, you needed the scene. No doubt about it.
1: Yeah, cuz they do eventually circle back to it.
0: And I think, you know, again, it's a song that pales in comparison when you not only put it up against the songs that you've already heard, but the song that that comes after this is Feed the Birds. Right. Which is such a wonderful tune. It's arranged in a beautiful manner. The lyrics are there. The message is even better. And this ended up being Walt Disney's favorite song.
1: Yeah, I definitely have a whole new appreciation for it after learning that. Because when I was a kid, I remember... Not that I ever really disliked the song, but... I remember thinking about it more in terms of what it meant to Mr. Banks. And to me, it was kind of their way of saying stop and smell the roses because he's in a hurry on the way to work and he passes her every day. And Mary Poppins even says sometimes he can't see past the end of his nose. And I kind of thought that that was really it. And it stopped there. But, you know, as you get older and. Doing so much research for the show, um, they really wanted that message in there that's more about charity than anything else.
0: Yeah. And um, it's it's another way of Mary Poppins being able to teach the child or the children, I should say, a lesson without, you know, taking them to school.
1: Right, that's it's like you said before. That's such a classic Disney thing where you're you're giving them the lesson without, you know, beating them over the head with it. But this is really just about, you know, just how far a simple act of kindness can go, and that it, it that tuppence a bag that they keep coming back to is just, you know, it's saying that it it doesn't cost you much to be nice. Actually, what it really is is that being kind costs you nothing. Yeah. And I'm sure that that's a lesson that Disney wanted everyone to learn,
0: right? And the bird lady, she's not there for monetary gain. She's there because she cares about the birds and she wants to see them fed. And this was an actress that had been in over 200 films and had won an Academy Award.
1: Yeah, she was in um, Gone with the Wind, I believe, and uh, Grapes of Wrath. I that's think what is she what won Walt. For. Yeah, that's what Walt knew her for. Uh, and he brought her out of retirement to do this.
0: Right, and this ended up being her last her last film. Um, and I think this was actually one of the last things they shot. I think it was this and Julie Andrews, her flying scenes. Those were the two things that they filmed last in the production of this movie.
1: Last they shot, but crazy enough, first one that the Sherman brothers wrote for it.
0: Yeah, and it, uh, we would be remiss for not... Mentioning how important that snow globe is. Yes. Not just in the film, but in Disney history. As we learned when we took the tour of the studio in Burbank, the entire reason why the Disney archive started was because, and forgive me because his name slips me, the, the gentleman who started the Disney archive. He was working at the studio and saw a snow globe on somebody's desk And said, where did you get this from? And it was from like a janitor that was like, oh, I found this in the garbage and I thought it looked nice so I didn't want to see it thrown away. It's the snow globe from this scene. Somebody threw it in the trash not knowing what it was. That's how the Disney archives got started. Because he said, I can't, I have to preserve these things. I can't see any other priceless or timeless artifact go in the trash. Right. So you have that snow globe to thank for the Disney archives.
1: What's crazy, too about this movie specifically is where some of these things ended up. I remember um we used to watch a show called profiles in History Hollywood Treasure Hollywood Treasure, yes, which was about the company profiles in history and uh you know it's a group of um uh, historians and they they authenticate film props essentially, so when they finally were able to track down the carpet bag, yeah it was like sitting in somebody's attic and they thought it was just an old piece of luggage so when the people from Profiles went to go see it, they knew instantly that it was a prop because of the material that it was made out of and it's lightweight too so that you can carry it easily and they knew immediately it was Mary Poppins' bag. Like how how it ends up in somebody's attic is beyond me.
0: Yeah, like sitting next to uh, your Christmas decorations to the left of the rat trap. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) and uh it's i i can't even imagine how many artifacts are gone and have been lost to time and lost to the dumps because people just threw things away and they didn't know what it was they just thought it was an old snow globe
1: i mean or at least if they're not completely lost to the dumps is that like you don't know there's hope for me that people are just sitting on things that they don't know what they have i mean when we were at the disney archives I had asked if they were if there was any affiliation to profiles. Uh, we met with Becky Klein, who who's the director there, and she was very quick to say no. I thought Disney was maybe licensing some of their things to go up for auction, and that's not how it happens at all. These are things that just escaped Disney property, and they're they're just kind of out there circulating, and now they're going up for auction. So, I feel personally responsible to rescue all of Disney's things. <laughs> and make sure that one day they will be returned to the archives. For now, they're in our home, but Disney will get them back someday.
0: Someday they will. I
1: promised Becky that I would rescue things for her.
0: Hey, you know what? They might get things on loan temporarily from us if we ever saw it fit. Um, And, and one day we'll be dead and they'll end up back at Disney. <laughs> That's what I'm saying, That's yeah. Really... I'm not
1: willing to part with them anytime soon, but after I die, yeah, they can have it back. They're going
0: back to Disney. We'll do the right thing. Yeah, sure. I don't want, I, I just like, I, at least I know if they go there, they're not, it sounds so contradictory. They're not going to end up on some schmo's wall that they got at a garage sale because somebody got it from us and sold it to somebody for $25. Not that we're spending $25 on these sales, but I, I want to make sure they go back to the right place. Absolutely. But we don't have to worry about it for a long time. <laughs> if all things go to plan, I don't need to worry about this for a long, <laughs> long time. Um, but yeah feed the birds um you're right it's it was the first the first song that they wrote which is amazing to me of all of the songs that are in this film that are so iconic i don't think this song is viewed universally as iconic as the rest of them even though in reality it is
1: known it should be because it captures the whole essence of the movie. But what blows my mind is this is the first thing they wrote. There was no script yet. How how do you capture the entire theme in a song? And you know, a song is well written, not just lyrically but musically. And you don't even have your entire story fleshed out yet.
0: I guess that's that's why everything was fleshed out as well as it was. Was at the root of it, they knew. message they wanted to send in this film and that's why this song was important and why it is so crucial to realize that this was the first song written and it sets up it sets the table for the entire film
1: this is also one of those instances where I just appreciate Disney so much more because he encouraged creativity because the Sherman Brothers contributed so much not just with this song but you know, when you look at it in that context of you didn't have a script yet, but this is what they were able to pull out of these stories. They were just as important as P.L. Travers and the screenwriter, you know, in manifesting this film.
0: Yeah. Um, I do want to point out before we get to our next song um, that that entire scene, well, that entire set, I should say, leading up to the bank Mm. and the sets around the bank are so dark and dreary which is done intentionally because they're trying to really paint that picture and Burt goes so far as to say that you know they make cages in all sizes yeah and even people like your father can end up in a cage even ones that are shaped as banks with carpets and all right and when George Banks gets that call we talked about it earlier leading up to his inevitable termination from the bank. He puts on his hat and he's walking through the streets alone and it's dark and it's lonesome and they use the score of the movie. Um, Actually, I think they used Feed the Birds.
1: They did. It was a temporary hold, actually, but because they, they were going to put something else underneath it and they just liked the way that it worked for that sequence.
0: But watching it now... It has the feel that it's almost like he's walking to his own execution and he knows it.
1: It's totally doom and gloom.
0: And it's perfect. Oh, yeah. It's absolutely perfect.
1: Especially because it leads you into the next song, and this is for me as a kid where the fun comes to a screeching halt with Fidelity Fiduciary Bank. I remember as a kid just straight up hating this scene and it just goes to show what a good job they did because as a kid you're bored to tears with it like you don't realize how important it is to see this side of george banks and what he deals with every single day
0: yeah and dick van dyke says it so perfectly that cold heartless money yeah which is something that as you get older you realize just how cold and heartless it all is um and they literally take money out of the hands of a child yeah, they do. That's Because that's all they care about. They don't care about what it means to the kid. They don't care that the, that the child wants to go feed the birds. They're looking at it in their own selfish way. It's like, well, we can take this and invest it. Absolutely. A- and that's, that's all they care about. They look at him like he's a dollar sign and he's a child.
1: And I love that it's the same tuppence that he wants to spend. That's all it takes to open the account. Right. And it just further drives that point home of Feed the Birds of what Tuppence will get you.
0: Exactly. So instead
1: of using it for an act of kindness, you know, they're, they're taking that cold, hard money.
0: And can we talk about, I don't think we've mentioned yet, uh, Dick Van Dyke is brilliant.
1: Yeah, there's another <laughs> uh, pivotal Dick Van Dyke moment in this sequence, and it has nothing to do with him saying that it's cold, hard money. When, when did you know? <laughs> let's, let's, uh, let's start with that.
0: That he was the the elder... uh, Elder Dawes. I want to say I found that out about 15 years ago.
1: I think for me, it was more recent. It was never something... I want to say probably like 8 to 10 years. It was never something that I actually noticed. It was when they did a re-release of the DVD, and at the end credits, they credit Elder Dawes, and they have... Whoever's name they put up and then they unscramble the letters to be Dick Van Dyke. And I remember my jaw hit the floor because I never knew. And you're talking about makeup in the 1960s. Think about how far prosthetics have come since then.
0: It's so impressive.
1: You just and and I felt stupid for never realizing it because the first bit when he comes down those stairs into the bank and he, he can't get down one step, you know. It definitely creates a feeble character, but looking at it now that you know, he's really not that hunched over. He's still got those long legs. Like, how how I never realized is beyond me.
0: What I love about all of this, too, is Dick Van Dyke has now told the story about, he would, it took him a, he said it took over two hours to get into that makeup, and he would shoot that at the beginning of the day. Before he would shoot his Burt scenes. And he would still be in that makeup when it came time for lunch, when they would call for lunch. So he'd go outside to the commissary and he said that there would be people touring the studio in those little vans. And he would hobble along and he would go slowly and make them stop and he would thank them. And then they'd drive away and he would wait until they got t- 20 yards away. And then he would just, he'd run as fast as he could and he would beat, he'd beat the, the van in a sprint.
1: I love that. I absolutely love that. It just goes to show how much fun he had making this film. And like, you know, he, uh, we said it a million times how he knew what he was a part of. The other thing um, that I love about him being the elder Dawes is that he fought for it. He, I mean, I guess they knew that they were going to cast a younger person to be, Be in this role because at the end Michael pushes him away so I can't imagine that you'd be able to put somebody that's actually that age in this role because they'd get hurt you know and he he kind of falls over and then at the end he laughs and he he, he's rising so you can't put somebody in a rig so they must have known pretty early on that they weren't going to use for argument's sake an 80 year old man in this role um I don't know how Dick Van Dyke found out about it But he was like, let me do this. I think I would have fun with it. And he convinced Disney to let him be the Elder Doss. And he was like, I I won't charge
0: you anything extra. You don't have to pay me anymore. I just want to do it. And his vocals for that song, he got them done in one take. That was all it took. That's amazing. Um, Chevy Chase will tell you he invented comedy. Yes, I know. That's why I hate him. No, you did not invent comedy. Dick Van Dyke didn't invent comedy, but he perfected it from all facets. I'd say he's a founding father. Yeah. He's up there with your Laurel and Hardy's, your Abbott and Costello's. He's He's there. Absolutely. Without question. Because he did it from all ends. He did it from snappy dialogue to being a song and dance man. To being able to trip and fall over an Ottoman in his television show or be this elder Dawes, he nailed physical comedy like he he just embodies comedy as a whole.
1: No, and he really went above and beyond the call because there's interviews of um Karen Dotris saying how how much fun she had with him on set that he would make them laugh just before a take just to get their energy up and keep their energy up throughout the day of shooting. That's amazing,
0: yeah. He's uh he's a legend and there's no debating it. Chim Chim Cherry is the next song on the soundtrack and the next song in the film. Um and what's important about this is I forget where it stemmed from. I think it was a conversation that um somebody was having with the Sherman brothers, and they had mentioned when a when a chimney sweep shakes your hand, it's good luck. And they heard that and they were like Oh, we can make we can make a song out of that. Like it's just it's amazing to me how creative these guys are and how they how how creative they were on the fly. And
1: Yeah, what sparked them? It was actually in the books. It was one of the chapters that they weren't That's right. using. They saw Mary a Mary Poppins shakes their hand, and uh, yeah, then somebody told them it meant good luck. But yeah, just from from the oddest of places.
0: And it's another one of those. Well, today I'm a chimney sweep, right? With with Bert, right? Um, and
1: this is the one. That was in the great movie, right? That's that's my most memorable uh, moment from Chimchurri, really.
0: Yeah. And they started the film with it and it comes back, you know, being full circle here, leading into one of the most iconic scenes and iconic songs in cinema. Oh, it's my fave.
1: Time. It's my fave. I, I remember especially having to sit through that bank scene that you knew this was coming after it, then it made that bank scene tolerable. Yeah. We are, of course, talking about Step in Time.
0: Yeah. Um, it's, it was a song that the Sherman brothers drew inspiration from other kind of silly songs that came out of Britain around this time.
1: It was Knees Up, it was called? Yeah, something, something like, like that. Like or that. like Link Your... But part of the dancing was the linking elbows.
0: Right and Walt Disney and a bunch of his producers and guys that had developed this film, they saw this being done, they did it themselves, and basically told the Sherman brothers, we want you to write a song where we can do something like this.
1: I don't think I can even quantify what I would do to have seen that.
0: Yeah. And not only do they write a song, but they develop a nine-minute scene around it.
1: But it doesn't feel like that. It does not drag by any stretch of the imagination. I wanted more.
0: Yeah. Just that amazing visual on the rooftops of London and these guys come shooting out of the chimneys covered in soot and do this incredible number. Yeah. With great music and... They, they're they just picking things out of the air that they see. or They're like, oh, let's jump on this. Jump on this, step into." I,
1: <laughs> I think that's my favorite part about it is the comedy. I mean, I'm biased because I'm a sucker for a big dance number. I mean, w- whatever musical it is, it's always going to be my favorite part. But I love that so much the humor of this song is. You know, even from the beginning of the number, when Bert calls out and he's like... Oh, it's all my pals. And they just, you know, kind of rally around him. It's it's It feels like they're getting out of work for the night, almost like they're going to a bar. And they have this rally cry and everybody just kind of joins in and there's no rhyme or reason and there's no questions asked. It, it's like a flash mob. Everybody just joins in. And it's like you say, it's so funny the way that they call out whatever it is, whatever they see in front of them, and it becomes part of the verse.
0: Right. And I, I just love the... I love the message of you never need a rhythm, you never need a rhyme. Yeah. it's We're just going to have fun. Kick
1: up your heels and have some fun.
0: Yeah. I, I think that that's something that everybody everybody should do from time to time. Is just, I, I don't care what it is. I don't care what you think. It doesn't matter if it makes no sense. We're just going to have a good time.
1: I love, too, that they literally bring that into the Banks home. And this is kind of where everything where chaos ensues because the admiral sees them that that's what what kills me too is that the reason that they bring it inside is that the admiral sees all this fun that they're having and he's like he tells his like me sidekick character to give him what for so they start shooting fireworks at people dancing on a rooftop and this is all acceptable so in order to escape the fire literally get out of the line of fire they start jumping into the chimney and end up in the Banks' home and they continue their song and this is probably my favorite part aside from the dancing is that they're still calling things out so Ellen screams and now it's ah! step in time or then
0: master's home step in time (laughs) oh my
1: god it's the master that's my favorite part and they just go with it yeah then Winifred comes in it's votes for for women. women step in time Um, I love that whole sequence. I think it's it's so funny. And now you know that everything's come to a head because George has come home after the chaos that Jane and Michael created earlier in the day, and he's spent presumably spent his entire day cleaning up that mess. And now he's got to come home to a bunch of soot covered men singing and dancing. Yeah,
0: and uh, we can't forget that, um, or we shouldn't fail to mention that when. when Jane and Michael run away from the bank and they end up running through the alleys of London, r- before they find Bert that leads them to this yeah, whole step yeah, in yeah. time, there's like, um, I don't want to call her a homeless woman, but there's like an old hag in the alley that kind of pops out and scares them.
1: Oh, she terrified me as a kid.
0: That's the actress who voiced Cruella DeVille.
1: I, I love that. I love that Disney worked with the same people, but I love that that's where they put her.
0: It's perfect. Yeah. And I, I... Similar to you, I just love those touches. But if you didn't know that before, you know that now. And, and you're a better person for it.
1: <laughs> no, it's true. Like, Disney was putting his own Easter eggs before Easter eggs were a thing.
0: Yeah. it totally wild. Um, and then, of course, you get that, that scene where it seems as if Mr. Banks is walking to his execution. And he kind of takes it all in stride and they fire him and it's in that moment that he sees that the job really wasn't worth the neglect that he put his family through and you have that incredible conclusion to this film the amazing character arc of Let's Go Fly a Kite which I will just say now has been ruined, for lack of a better term for me. Because now when I watch that scene in Mary Poppins, the only thing I could think is, she's dancing with Dawn. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) From Saving Mr. Banks.
1: It's such a huge character moment in Saving Mr. Banks, and we'll definitely talk more about it next week. But... It falls so flat now in Mary Poppins because it doesn't give me the warm and fuzzies the way that it does in Saving Mr. Banks because it's such a huge moment in that movie. I And st- it is
0: here, but... You still get emotion, but it's different. It's Exactly. It's totally different. Um, But the fact that Mr. Banks comes home, he mends the kite for the children, and he's singing, Let's Go Fly a Kite. Like, he the the type of behavior that he had frowned upon and he's all disheveled he's got a hole in his hat his collar's coming off his shirt and he doesn't care he just wants to grab his children and go fly a kite
1: right and um you know it does such a great job not just the message that it's sending of nothing else matters let's just go spend some time together it does such a great job of wrapping everything up because in the beginning of the song he says, with tuppence for paper and string, you can have your own set of wings. It doesn't seem like it's that important, but he's been out all night kind of reevaluating his life. Those were Michael's tuppence because Michael never grabbed them back.
0: That Well, they gave them to him, and they were like, here, father, if this fixes it,
1: Yes, before he went back out. Right. Um. So that's right. Michael did have them back, but that's how George ended up with the Tuppins, and that's what he used to buy the things that were going to fix the kite.
0: Right. So and that's
1: that's a completely full circle moment. And then Winifred says a proper kite need a, a proper kite needs a proper tail, and she goes to get her votes for women sash. And I never realized it as a kid. I just kind of thought it was her putting her touch on it. But what you realize is that's her character arc because now she's not afraid to come out and show George what she's been doing all along.
0: Yeah, it's it's the perfect way to end this film. It's the perfect note to go out on. Right. And this movie, I always loved it as a kid. We grew up with this movie. And Step in Time was my jam growing up. I don't know if it was, I, I have to assume this was a staple for your family.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I loved Step in Time. Like I said, the big dance numbers were always my favorite. But what I remember most about this movie as a kid, this is so weird, is um is Jolly Holiday. And that was because my brother would sing it constantly. Like when you're like, two, three years old and you're just kind of figuring out like how to memorize songs and sing them and everything, that's what he would sing and he would do all the animal noises and it was hysterical. But, you know, like we'd be driving in the car and the radio was off and just from the back seat I just remember him singing this song. And and that's what I remember now about this movie as a child, probably more than
0: anything else. And to this day, kids are still watching this movie. And this movie is still so relevant because unfortunately it's about fixing a broken family that's what this film is about and for better or for worse you know it is what it is that's a problem that's never going to go away right so this film will always be relevant
1: I think especially now too with social media and you know it just seems that everyone is always so busy but I think that's part of it is social media open this door. You constantly see all of your network out doing things by default. You kind of want to go do them too. It's that like FOMO thing. Right. And yeah, I, I think that that's contributing to a lot of neglect amongst children.
0: And not that Disney saw into the future per se and saw how bad that it had gotten in regards to that. Um, that specific instance, that specific example. But I think they knew that there were always going to be broken families. There were always going to be children that needed a Mary Poppins. Right. And between that and the music, that's what lends itself to this film being timeless. And in my opinion, I go so far as to say that in a total package... It's probably the greatest Disney film ever made,
1: I think so, especially like when you think of Walt's role and like it it was really like his masterpiece, which you could argue was Snow White because that was the first full length animated feature, but like I feel like especially because this was towards the end of his life, it's like a a culmination of his entire career, like everything he learned as far as storytelling. And the technical elements and the sight gags and, you know, the animating with the live action, it put everything into it.
0: And it meant so much to him personally that people take him seriously as a filmmaker, not just a cartoonist per se. And this film, for lack of a better term, legitimized him. Yes. It showed that he could do more than just make kids laugh with cartoons. Absolutely and there are so many great disney films that's why this show exists i um i can't th- i really can't think of one that's better
1: not one that he worked on at least personally
0: and, yeah um which is what makes this sequel that's coming out in a week and a half such a hot button conversation for so many people um it's astonishing that you're even seeing a sequel all these years later because P.L. Travers hated this movie she hated it to the day she died she hated this movie
1: yeah which is it's so depressing to me that like she never got over it and that this movie didn't just completely enchant her and make her fall in love with it
0: she went so far as to put in her will mm-hmm. that no American filmmaker would ever be allowed to make a Mary Poppins film and that if it ever went to stage, no American writer were to write the the musical.
1: Right, which caused a whole bunch of other headaches when they wanted to put Mary Poppins on Broadway.
0: Right, and even when you watch Saving Mr. Banks, which, as we mentioned, we'll talk about next week. That was made with Disney and BBC. Right. So, clearly, there are a lot of hoops for them to jump through to get these films made. I, she, She didn't love the idea of her films being adapted. She definitely wasn't fond of Walt Disney doing it, and for whatever reason, she seemed in her life to be anti-American. Like, somehow, she was blaming... She was blaming American writers for these films, or for this film, I should say, and for all the things she didn't like about it. That's clear because it wasn't that she was against more movies being made. She didn't want Americans making them.
1: Which is funny because she's Australian, not English.
0: Yeah. um, She was certainly an interesting lady, to say the least. Um, I think she was a tortured soul, Um, Absolutely. And we're not going to downplay what she went through in her life. Certainly her life was not easy. That was the inspiration for Mary Poppins because she drew inspiration from an aunt of hers that Mm -hmm. kind of came in to help her broken family. And I think part of it, too, and I'm not a psychologist and she's not here to talk to me about it. But I also think that Mary Poppins was also sort of the person that she always wished had come to help her and didn't. I think for sure she wrote what she needed. Yeah. And um, 20 years it took Walt Disney to get this film made. And the Sherman brothers didn't know that he hadn't secured the rights. They said that it was 30 days that she spent with them working on it. And it wasn't until the 30th day. When Th- she had to sign. Yeah. And she did. Thank goodness absolutely unbelievable story
1: which begs the question why would they open pandora's box again cha-ching i mean, yes okay <laughs> absolutely there's money to be made but i'm surprised that they would mess with it on that level after the headache that she gave them and i'm i'm surprised really that they would feel the need to tell another story when this one ties everything up so neatly. I mean, I will say this when I first learned that they were doing another Mary Poppins, I thought they were doing a remake and I was like, don't you dare. But once I found out it was a sequel, I was slightly more on board with it. And I, I've kind of teetered back and forth ever since. Um, Once we saw the trailer, I, I fell in love with Emily Blunt as Mary Poppins, and this is just from a trailer, so I think I'm really going to enjoy her in this film, especially knowing that she got Julie Andrews' blessing to do this. Um, they did ask Julie Andrews to make a cameo in Mary Poppins' return, and her answer was, no, this is Emily's. Let her do it.
0: Yeah, she she feared it would be a distraction.
1: Which, I mean it makes me respect her even more. I think that's, that's an amazing gesture. Um, So I, I definitely like Emily Blunt in this. Um, I like that they do nod to that. She's back to help the bank's children who are now grown and having problems of their own with their families. Um, And then I go back and forth because I feel like I've seen so many trailers and, sneak peeks and so many parts of this movie I feel like I've seen it already and I'm almost kind of sick of it now
0: I'm cautiously optimistic I think the music that I've heard so far and I haven't gone out and bought the soundtrack I don't like to do that prior to movies coming out because I think it spoils the movie Mm. Um, from what I've heard the music sounds great it sounds like it belongs I'm just not on board with this Lin Manuel Miranda has to rap in everything because he's Lin Manuel Miranda. Um, This film takes place in 1910. You, by looking at the Banks' children, they look like they're in their mid 40s. Yeah, so
1: figure 35, 30, 35 years. Yeah.
0: So. This new film is taking place somewhere between the years of 1940 and, say, 1945. Right. Maybe the latest 1950, though I don't think they're that old. There was no rap. It didn't exist in England in the 1940s. I don't care that it's Lin-Manuel Miranda. You don't have to give him his shtick because he's in the movie. I don't think it's going to fit. I agree with you. Um... I... Now, I'm also biased because I don't like rap. I'm putting that out there. I don't like rap. I don't see the appeal at Hamilton. I don't care about it. That's that. That's me personally.
1: I mean, I, I do. I like rap a lot. And I do think that Lin-Manuel Miranda is insanely talented. And I think we're just beginning to tap into what he's going to do with his career. I think this is the tip of the iceberg. And I think that Disney recognizes that. However... Um, I'm not the biggest Moana fan, and a lot of that is the music because I feel like it didn't
0: fit Disney. I didn't love that music at all.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of songs. You're welcome. But I think that's more about the rock for me than the actual yeah. song. Um, So I feel like if there's going to be a weak point or the part that disappoints me, I think it might be the music. And that's not to say that I don't have faith in him but like when you put it up against the sherman brothers and everything that they did and contributed to this movie i feel like you just can't hold a candle to that
0: when they said that he was cast i rolled my eyes and went great it's rap in a mary poppins movie and then i started to see him in the trailers and doing his song and dance thing and i was like delivered on it i was like oh man you know what maybe i'm wrong and 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 he's gonna be so good and i hope i am wrong but then when they confirmed he's gonna rap in it i'm like that doesn't historically that's that doesn't make sense
1: yeah unless it's like some kind of number where it's almost like a step number like if they kind of deconstructed step in time and they took out the music and did it more of a stomp and he's kind of saying the lyrics along with it I feel like that's the only way you're going to be able to pull it off but I mean that's it at this point we, we've we talked about how iconic mo- this movie is and, you know, impress me. Blow me away with it. I, I hope you succeed. I hope I'm wrong, honestly, because I don't want this franchise tarnished.
0: And that's the thing. With this kind of movie, I mean, we've gone on for nearly two hours, which for us is a long show, about this movie, but that's because... Yeah, we're not even this, talking about a park. But but that's that's because that's how iconic and how special this movie is. Mary Poppins returns can't be, that was good. I have to be blown out of the water. You have to blow us away.
1: No, and that's it. This is an instance of the bigger they are, the harder they
0: fall. That's the thing. This movie is either, I'm either going to walk out of there going, yes, yes, you did it, or I'm going to walk out of there angry. There's no, there's going to be no middle ground. I don't see how there can be, given what you're, given what you're, what you're up against not just in regards to making a sequel and sequels are typically almost never as good as the originals. Right. But there's a reason why it's been over 50 years and there wasn't a sequel made to this movie on top of the fact that P.L. Travers was a pain. I feel like,
1: you know, this isn't going to be like your Worth the Wait Incredibles 2 or Wreck-It Ralph 2. Um, With that being said... You know, we don't typically do new movies, but since there were so many big movies this year, um, that's how we're going to kind of do a wrap-up of this this year and kick off next year. Um, For next week, we've got Saving Mr. Banks leading into the release of Mary Poppins Returns. Um, Week after that is Christmas, so we're not going to have a show. And then the following week, We're going to do, I think I believe that's actually New Year's Day, January 1st. We're going to do kind of a year in review, so you'll get to hear our thoughts on Mary Poppins Returns.
0: Yeah, a brief review, and obviously, when the time comes, we'll give you a full, in-depth review of not just that film, but the other films that have come out in 2018 that we've seen. There were only one or two that we didn't catch. Um, And uh, news this week, um, we got... uh, we got an Avengers four trailer.
1: We did, yeah. Uh,
0: after we thought it was coming last week. It came this week. Um it looks they like we
1: dangled that carrot for quite a while.
0: Yeah. Looks like Paul Rudd is going to be the man that saves the world. <laughs> <laughs> and uh it's uh it's it's a Marvel trailer. It got two hundred and eighty nine million views. It is the uh the highest debuting trailer in film history, and it looks like a Marvel movie. I don't know what else to say. It looks like a Marvel movie.
1: Uh, I will say the beginning with Tony Stark was impressive. That probably engaged me the most out of everything. Other than that... I yep. kind of feel like the same way about Captain Marvel. Yeah. is You're your sprinkling breadcrumbs and... I'm not really invested in it quite yet. I mean, I, I, I love the Avengers. So, like, you've got me on that level. I'm, I want to see where the story goes. I want to see how it ends. But there was nothing where I was like, wow, this is mind-blowing.
0: I, yeah, it's, um, I was blown away when I saw the Bohemian Rhapsody trailer. Yeah. I was not blown away by Bohemian Rhapsody uh, as much as I enjoyed it. But I was blown away by that trailer.
1: Well hopefully this is the opposite. Trailer's right.
0: not that impressive and the movie blows this away. But my but my point and I'm I'm circling back around to it is there's just been so much Marvel right in the last two or three years that it's it's all kind of becoming the same to me at this point. And I know that's kind of what they're going for is that this all takes place in the same universe but that shouldn't mean that I'm any more or less excited over any particular trailer. Oh, it's an oversaturated like you universe. Me, like, you give me a Batman trailer right now, and I'm going to fly off the handle. I can't wait to see a new Batman trailer. Seeing a new Marvel trailer is like, didn't I just get a Marvel trailer a week and a half ago? Oh, this is another new Marvel trailer, right, right, and right, right, you know right. what? In 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 less than a month, I'm sure I'm going to get another new Marvel trailer.
1: Right. I mean... With this, it's kind of like for as much marvel as we got as we had at one point when they released those Guardians trailers. It still felt I couldn't fresh. Wait to still, get another one. Yeah, you couldn't get enough. This didn't feel like
0: that. No,
1: and this should be like the crowning glory of all of them, you know?
0: Right. Walt's birthplace in Chicago, the house he was born in, has been refurbished and remodeled.
1: Yes, to look exactly as it did when the Disneys were there. Um, There's a story that was released. They did a news package in it that kind of took you through a tour of the home. We'll post that uh, on our social media so you can see. Uh, But yeah, Walt Disney was born in Chicago. He lived there up until he was about five years old. And then the family uh, moved to Missouri, which a lot of people think he was born in Missouri because everybody knows that that's kind of what Main Street USA was modeled after, was his time spent there in that small town, Middle America. Um, but the, that home, the house that he grew up in, uh, has since burned in a fire, but they did a refurb on the original one in Chicago or his, cost his eight,
0: birthplace. $800 to build that house.
1: Yeah. His, his father built it, I think. Yes. And they restored it to the way that the Disney's had it, which they said that they didn't even know the neighborhood didn't even know like what they were sitting on, which Oh
0: my god. <laughs> and they basically had to tear it down to the studs to see how the house was originally laid out because without knowing how significant that house was, that house had already been renovated, it had been changed, and they said the house was in disarray, but after many, many years of fundraising, they've finally gotten it back to what you would imagine it was in its original state. And they're they're doing more fundraising because they want to make it a more immersive interactive experience. I'm sure it'll be some sort of museum in the future.
1: I love that. Um, that's just such a Disney thing to do is like tear, tear it apart and put it back together. And that's kind of what they had to do to rebuild it.
0: Right. It's like that, uh, like that mechanical bird that he got in new Orleans that later became the, the inspiration box, yeah. for the, uh, for the enchanted Tiki room.
1: Yeah. Um, not related to film um but we also got a sneak peek at what Tokyo Disney is going to do with Beauty and the Beast it's somewhat related because this looks like the most interactive experience
0: i've ever seen they're doing a lot of work over in Tokyo yeah they're crushing it right now they're doing a big expansion over there they're getting um they're getting a few different lands added
1: yeah but this uh this Beauty and the Beast thing it looks like it's going to be like life life-size animatronics kind of like Frozen, I guess. But um, it's going to be a walkthrough, so you can kind of walk through the scenes.
0: That's my understanding of it.
1: We'll post it on our social media as well. It, It looks really cool.
0: Yeah. And don't forget, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at monoreal radio um, we of course take time to thank our sponsor over at Amazon they're a great friend of ours you can go to slash home I know it's a mouthful um, and you can get links to the uh, the Amazon uh, instant video for every film that we review on monoreal radio
1: and if you're thinking of planning a visit and if you're thinking of planning a Disney vacation for 2019 Email me at j.zolezzi, Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I at magicalvacationplanner.com and I can help you start to plan your trip.
0: Thank you so much for joining us this week and sticking with us. We know this was a long one, but certainly worth it. I mean, this movie is just so special and so timeless. Um, We thank you again and we thank you every week. We will be back next week to discuss Saving Mr. Banks. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. (laughs)